Hello, and welcome to The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Allison Herman, a TV connoisseur per Bill Simmons for TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, he is currently circling Lower Manhattan in a helicopter to recreate the Billions title shot. It's Ringer editorial assistant Chris Almeida. How are you doing, Chris? I'm great and ready to avoid cliches. As are we all, except for maybe Spiros, which is the, the irony of that line. But... We are here to talk about All the Wilburys, which is the eighth episode of the third season of Billions. The next time you want to ambush, threaten, humiliate, or otherwise fuck with me, you do well to remember who you're fucking with. It is the second episode in a row that was co-written by the creators Brian Koppelman and David Levine. As I mentioned last week, that's usually a little bit of a tip that whatever we're about to get is pretty important in the course of the season. And in my humble estimation, this was a pretty big episode for turning the gears of plot. Last week, they obviously cleared the board of what we thought was the biggest conflict of the season, which was Axe's trial. And then this season, or this episode, we get a lot more board clearing on Chuck's end, some setup for the rest of the season on Axe's end, but they're still in the process of changing gears and moving into a different phase of the season. But what did you just think of the overall episode before we get into recapping? Yeah, I thought it was interesting seeing how they were finally turning around the non-Chuck and Axe characters. We obviously, in this episode, we see uh Taylor and Axe start to really come to blows for the first time. You know, uh, obviously the last scene of the episode is is quite telling when Axe, you know, blows off at dinner with his kids just to try to stay in the office longer than Taylor. Uh, we see, you know, Wendy starting to push up against Foley and Chuck Sr. And, you know, I liked what they started to do with everything else, you know, now that the Chuck-Axe uh, dynamic has kind of, like, lost a bit of steam after they— coordinated, so. No, that's a really good point. I think last episode was such an intense three-hander. Obviously, Mafi had his moment in the sun, but it was such <laughs> a Chuck, Wendy, Axe, what are they going to do? They're all bound together. They're all on the same side. And then this episode, I thought, took the time to widen out and check in with where this leaves Taylor, where this leaves Wags, where this leaves, obviously, Dollar Bill and Spiros. And we clearly get a lot of Chuck and Axe, but it's much more about how they affect everyone else than their lives in and of themselves. But before we dive into the details, we should probably take care of the 42-second recap delivered by yours truly. Chuck and Wendy are looking forward to his celebratory dungeon run, but Senior and Blackjack ambush them to tell Chuck a governor can't be into whips and chains like that. Between this power play, Judge DiGiulio calling in his favor to ask Chuck to stay at the Southern District, and Wendy asking him what he really wants out of life, Chuck decides politics may not be for him after all and to endorse Buffalo Bob Sweeney for governor rather than running himself. Never fuck with Wendy Rhodes, Chuck Senior. Meanwhile, Axe makes his triumphant return to Axe Cap, where he butts heads with Taylor, negotiates his fee with Lara, fires Spiros, and rehires Spiros after he forms an unlikely alliance with Dollar Bill. A busy week, but he just can't hold on to that winning feeling. Also, Cotterty got fired. <laughs> so, very action-packed, plot-heavy week, but I thought the Chuck 
side of that equation was still like it's taking something we thought was going to be a major plot for the entire season and just kind of saying, never mind, we're nixing that. We, the gubernatorial run has been set up since last season as this big overarching ambition. And he just decides that's not what he wants to do anymore, which leaves the obvious question of what now, whereas Axe's side, I thought, was all about what now. It's where does this leave him with Taylor? Uh, what new nefarious doings can the firm do now that they're kind of <laughs> out of the watchful eye of the federal government? I don't know. I thought it was an interesting transitional episode. I still think we're waiting on what the real meat of the second half of the season is going to be. Yeah, I guess we'll see that whenever uh, John Malkovich shows up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're still waiting. I can't. I'm growing impatient. I trust the showrunners, but they're really, really holding the other shoe tightly in their grip. But I do have to ask what you thought of this like weird unlikely buddy comedy between Dollar Bill and Spiros, which I was not expecting to be one of the central relationship arcs of the season, (laughs) but apparently is going to be. Well, I mean, it's extremely entertaining, if nothing else. I mean, you have Dollar Bill, who's just one of the strangest characters I've ever seen on television, and Spiros, who is just so perfectly disgusting in every way. And, you know, I think uh, it's interesting to see them coordinate in the same way that I guess you saw Chuck and Axe coordinate in that, you know, everyone just really cares about the bottom line here. And so, you know, Dollar Bill, even though he hates Spiros, would run his car, like, into the ground. He is still willing to coordinate with him in order to help his standing at the firm, help the firm in general. So, you know, I I really enjoyed just some of the exchanges that they had, but I think that also that relationship is going to, you know, be an interesting thing for Axe Capital going forward. Yeah, I think you're right that Bill is definitely operating with the bottom line in mind, and obviously Spiros (laughs) wants to continue financing that big fancy sports car that I guess he's gotten fixed at the very fancy sports car mechanic that I'm sure is just around the corner in midtown (laughs) Manhattan. But, They're really getting a lot of play out of uh, that Porsche jacket. I mean, it. there's a lot of juice to be wrung from the sight of Ari Spiros in a fancy racing uniform. But I think Spiros, like, genuinely believes that Axe Cap is his family now. And he has this really—it's not endearing because nothing about Spiros is endearing. But he has a very earnest and disarming sense of— wanting to belong to something greater than himself. Mm-hmm. It's a weird, like, a big part of the goings-on at Axe Capital is trying to figure out what motivates everyone beyond pure money. And I think Dollar Bill, per his name, is the most, I just want to make cash for myself, my family, and my colleagues. But, you know, Mafi has a genuine sense of honor. Taylor has this very intellectual sense of how to operate in the world. And Spiros just wants to hang out. (laughs) But that brings us to at least my nomination for the most scarring moment of the week, if we can move on to the awards, which is Axe comes back to Axe Capital, which is a huge event. Everyone is so excited. There's applause. There's metal. He's wearing a ridiculous (laughs) T-shirt. Everyone's pretty high on their own supply. It feels like there's going to be an all-day party. And then Spiros decides to bring the entire proceeding to a screeching halt 
by jumping up on the table and trying to get everyone to join him in a rousing rendition of Oh Captain, My Captain. Oh Captain, My Captain, our fearful trip is done. Get down from there. And no one is having it. And instantly uh, we go into business meeting mode and what to do with the firm because people would rather cut their entire celebration short and talk business than spend a minute entertaining Ari Spiros. Oh, that was so perfect. The way the music just scratches off and uh, they, I really love how much they're enjoying themselves with him, um, which is, I guess, goes into my most scarring moment, which is uh, also a Spiros happening. The At the end of the episode when he and Dollar Bill go into Axe's office and, you know, uh, Wags and Axe are like, oh, why, why are you bringing him back here? We busted a cap in his ass. Um, they present their findings and Axe asks whether um, the information that Spiros is, you know, getting from the SEC is going to be like a renewable source of, you know, of, you know, productivity for them. And he says – as long as we don't open our proverbial overcoats and flash our junk at a particular three-lettered agency. That's which... just another example of – so the scheme that – or the play, heavy quotes, that uh, Spiros <laughs> saves his skin by going to Dollar Bill with is that he will basically just tell Dollar Bill what companies are under investigation by the SEC but haven't actually disclosed it yet. And so Bill can short the ones that are actually dirty and go long on the ones that will take a minor hit when the investigation is announced but then will eventually recover. And they have some legitimate bonding over it. Um, but when they finally come to Axe, they have to – they have to – put things in a very veiled terminology sure. because they obviously can't come out and say to their boss, who is just under federal prosecution, that we're going to use insider trading. Although, of course, Axe knows, they know Axe knows, Axe knows that they know that he knows. It's just a whole wink, wink, nudge, nudge of a conversation. But Spiros is just so bad at being covert <laughs> or subtle in any way that he just men goes out and says, not only mentions genitalia, but also says a certain three-lettered agency, which literally anyone, a toddler, could tell. But Axe Cap is uh, not wasting any time at all in going into the back or plunging back into the dirty side of the business, which I think we should also probably just touch on what this means for the Axe Taylor relationship. You mentioned that before. Like what did you what did you think of the developments there? Well I thought that was interesting. So so Taylor obviously we is a character that we've liked since their introduction. Uh, but I think that Morally, they've been, you know, quite ambiguous. It's not easy to tell exactly where they draw the line in terms of shady dealings, in terms of, you know, the, you know, the moral implications of the things that they're shorting and the things that they're investing in. You know, obviously, we saw that with uh, the Elon Musk-esque character, uh, you know, dying in the rocket launch last episode. But I think this made it very clear that they're opposed to these kinds of shady dealings and that I guess was heartening in some way, uh, maybe disappointing for others. I don't know, depending on how you feel about 
you know, justice or, you know, the value of playing dirty in this world. Um, Well, it's also it's not just or even that it's necessarily an ethical objection. It's that Axe storms in after Taylor has done their job and done it really well and kept ahead of the market and outperformed and maintained Axe Cap's reputation. And Axe basically just wants to piss all over his own territory again and market as his. And so he says, you know, scrap everything you're working on, get rid of this nascent quant operation, get rid of all your current positions. We're going to start from scratch. And Taylor begrudgingly says, okay, I'll do this, but as compensation, I want a billion dollars of my own money to manage as I see fit. Axe responds by giving her only a quarter billion dollars, which to us obviously is more money than we will ever see (laughs) by several orders of magnitude in our entire lifetimes. But Taylor is upset because, as they point out, I didn't do just a quarter of what you asked, so you should give me more than a quarter of what you promised. Axe basically says, I didn't say when, which is just some, like, grade school truth or dare logic. But Taylor continues. But then Axe essentially asked them to use a natural gas short that he comes up with via an illegal tip from Todd Krakow over at the Treasury Department, who also mentions his very young wife, which oh, I imagine yes. is a yeah. reference to Louise Linton. They're just really leaving, leaning into that Steve Mnookin <laughs> comparison, analogy, what have you. But uh, Axe basically just goes to Taylor and says, can you use your fund as cover, which is asking Taylor not just to make do with less than what they were promised, but also to do things that are not of their own accord and taking on a massive amount of legal liability on behalf of a boss who's not, you know, delivering to them in the way that really justifies that level of delivery, I thought. And this is a big betrayal of the way that we saw that Axe operated or we thought that Axe operated with the people that he cared about over the first two seasons, right? Like when we look at the way that he makes sure to like – take care of Bruno because he always, you know, was there for him when he was in a time of need, the way that, uh, like, I was always very surprised that he was faithful to Lara. Um, I think we all were. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, we, he, you would assume that he's going to do what he says he's going to do when, you know, he's, he's working with somebody who's had his back in the past. And this was just so clearly him not giving a fuck about that, that, you know, obviously that shook Taylor quite a bit. Um, and I think the the way that they showed uh, him kind of coming in and, and doing that was really good. I thought that when Taylor was, when Taylor first started leading the meetings at Axe Capital a few episodes ago, it was obviously very awkward. They were kind of, you know, trying to reconcile their, the, the robot personality with the way that the rest of the firm operates and this episode uh they start saying oh yeah we're up like a uh, wags's morning wood and then really right after that axe just storms in and is like oh yeah get rid of everything get rid of the quant experiment and so i i think they did a great job of showing how axe not only is you know pissing on his territory is kind of betraying taylor but also betraying the way that he had worked in the past when maybe he wasn't quite as on tilt when, you know, the other things in his life weren't as threatened as they are now. I also think this is an example of 
maybe a troubling continuing pattern because between Taylor this week, who he initially approaches by taking to a car dealership and basically saying, I'll buy you whatever you want, which Taylor takes him up on, though they also (laughs) wisely make an additional demand, and going to Mephi last week and, you know, misremembering what sport he played in high school and not being able to get a read on how he can leverage him to lie on Wendy in his behalf— I think he's losing part of what makes Axe Cap so functional, which is that he knows everyone enough to know when and how to push them. I think if he knew how to appeal to Taylor, he wouldn't have ever, or he wouldn't at least have opened by just such a blatant display of dragging them to a car dealership and conspicuous consumption. Yeah. Same with Mafi, like rewarding Mafi with a stick in crypto clearly did not make him feel any better, although he seems to be doing pretty good this week. Shout out to Dudley. But <laughs> I the, also. The little wave that he gives Wendy at the end of the episode is just perfect. Uh, oh. Just what a sweetheart. <laughs> Truly too pure for his current workplace. I wish him the best. Maybe he can go back to Colorado and start investing in the cannabis space, <laughs> as they call it. But because this is billions and there's no shortage of scarring moments, we both each had maybe a runner-up from the Chuck side. So oh, yeah. I will start with mine, which is that at the very end of the episode, after Wendy has maybe manipulated Chuck a little bit into convincing him that he doesn't actually want to run for governor and he doesn't want to be in politics. He wants to be above politics, which I think is both something that's very rational, but also something that we learn later in the episode might not have been. It's not advice that was necessarily delivered purely in the interest of advancing their partnership because Wendy strolls into Chuck Senior's hotel room where he's waiting for a young blonde woman who is very conspicuously not Chuck's mom, who I guess (laughs) is back together with him. Uh, Make better choices, Mrs. Rhodes. But Wendy walks in having canceled this rendezvous and reminds him to think about who he's fucking with the next time he decides to ambush someone and make very private uh, jokes at the expense of their sex life. (laughs) And while she's sort of toying with him and reminding him that she is now the person in the position of power, she jokingly suggests that he takes off his robe and gets comfortable. But we have already seen what is under that robe, and I have no desire to go there again. you don't need to... But I thought this was an interesting development for Wendy because it's her operating out of maybe spite and not necessarily what is best for Chuck or even just Chuck and her as a family unit. So I was curious what you thought of that. You know, she's she's still breaking bad was my interpretation of that. Sure. Yeah. I think that's also, you know, that's what we've been seeing over the past episode or two is Wendy, who we're, I guess, we're meant to assume from the very beginning that, you know, she has everyone's interest in in mind uh, in her role as performance coach and her role as, you know, Chuck's partner. But definitely, you know, last episode we saw the way that she was, you know, willing to compromise some of her integrity and in this episode we saw her you know feeling bad about what she did with Mafi uh but still obviously you know she's willing to give advice that maybe we're not sure if it's honest or not or if that's even you know really a thing when you're when you're talking about issues like this but 
Yeah, I think seeing Wendy clearly work on her own behalf, seeing that has been really an interesting development. I think that's going to, you know, be obviously something that plays a large part probably towards the end of the season. Yeah, and just the prospect of a master manipulator who knows all of your psychological weaknesses and soft spots and can leverage them to her own advantage as opposed to helping you to compensate for them is something that's genuinely kind of scary. And it's interesting to see billions start to follow through on the implications. But while she is giving Chuck this advice— Maybe a, a tip that it's not working is that Chuck is a bit of a loose cannon. So that kind of brings us to your your vote for the most traumatizing or scarring moment of the Chuck side of the episode. Yeah. So after, you know, Connerty fails to put his boss and his boss's wife and Axe in jail, he comes back to work under Chuck and, you know, his he's in a new office, his computer isn't working. He's playing solitaire at his desk with actual cards, you know, just kind of twiddling his thumbs and waiting to get access. You know, he looks at Sacker and she kind of looks away. Uh, it's all very awkward. And Chuck finally comes in and talks to him and gives him the impression that, you know, it's okay. You were trying to do your job. I don't resent you. And then gradually leans into this long spittle-infused rant where he's telling Connerty that he's fired and he has to get the fuck out of the office. And really, it's an unnecessary thing. He's doing this in the middle of the, the floor of the office in front of everyone there, and it's very strange. But one of the—it it was, you know, quite a Giamatti moment And that's why it was scarring. But I also thought it was interesting because you saw a lot of parallels here between, you know, what Chuck is saying to Connerty as uh, you see with Chuck Sr. and Chuck Jr. earlier in the episode. And that Chuck maybe isn't as upset about the fact that Connerty was trying to put him in jail and trying to, you know, work against his interests as much as that he failed to do it. Uh, I think, you know, one of the lines is, you know, you forgot, you know, you learned every lesson I had except for one, like, that you have to win. And that just, to me, it made so much sense. Like when, you know, Chuck Sr. comes and, you know, mouths Chuck Jr. earlier in the season, it's because he was willing to, you know, go low and win, you know, win what he needed to by doing something dirty rather than, you know, doing something clean rather than making an emotional appeal. And here you feel like Chuck may be, you know, more unhappy with the fact that his protege couldn't finish the deal than the fact that he was working against him. Yeah, damn the torpedoes is the the memorable phrase. But (laughs) I understand Chuck's reasoning, both emotional and you know, calculatory about firing Connerty. But my take about this was that it's not a very smart strategic decision just to cite a Machiavellian cliche, like keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. (laughs) Also, just admitting via, you know, full Jamadi rant in front of an entire office full of people whose jobs it is to enforce the law that you are firing an employee because they went after your wife does not (laughs) seem to me to be the soundest legal strategy. It's also just, you know, you have someone who 
maybe isn't able to prove the wrongdoing but knows you did something wrong and you are, are currently in the advantageous position of being their boss and having them under your employ. And Connerty at least seems prepared to let it be water under the bridge as long as he can go back to his job and just stop pursuing it. And Chuck basically guarantees that he's going to pursue it now by releasing him from his employ, pissing him off, and most importantly, kind of letting him go from under his watchful eye. Like, it just doesn't seem like good, smart strategy to me to take someone who has even a little bit of dirt on you and take them off your payroll and out into the world where you can no longer exercise as much control over them as you can when you are writing their paychecks. Or the U.S. government is writing both your paychecks, but you're supervising them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly not tactful. But that same rant that we were just talking about does have your pop culture reference of the week. So we should move on to this classic billion segment of the episode. It was a little bit of a culture light episode, I thought, or at least I did until we I started like pouring over the nominees. So what was your pop culture reference of the week? Well, um, there's one point in Chuck's, you know, long crescendoing rant where he describes himself uh, as bad, bad Leroy Brown, the baddest man in the whole damn town, which it was a lot even for this show, uh, but I quite enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I got the the image of Chuck like listening to a Jim Crow's album, like the, char- like the characters from Transparent in the first season <laughs> is just, it's not necessarily on brand for him. It's a little bit like Taylor calling a position thick as Nicki Minaj or, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, joking about Wags Morningwood. But one of the things I love about Billions Pop Culture references is that they're not necessarily that attendant to whether a character would realistically be a fan of the pop culture they're referencing. And then that also, I mean, the title of the episode we should mention is a pop culture reference, which is when Wags and Axe are firing Spiro, something they have clearly rehearsed and been looking forward to all day. They've been wanting to do it for months, and they finally have the ability to do it without looking super guilty. The metaphor Axe uses to explain it is that George Harrison, most famous as a member of the Beatle, Beatles, was also a member of the Traveling Wilburys. And Spiros does not have the stuff it takes to be a Wilberry, to which Spiros replies several times, <laughs> I am a Wilberry, <laughs> which is just the most absurd, again, like painfully earnest, would be at least a little bit charming in its earnestness if it weren't Ari Spiros saying it, but... Just a great moment, I thought. Yeah, just watching him gesture wildly and screaming his securities, like pushing him out. And it's it's just so like a little brother desperate to hang out with like his older siblings and he doesn't know how to, you know, get into their good graces. He's so he's so pathetic. It's perfect. I mean, the final dagger stab is when Dollar Bill walks into gloat before they, <laughs> they forge their alliance and he reminds him that that fancy coffee equipment is company owned, which is maybe a signal that it is going to be there. Like they are going to find some common ground because at least to me, it suggested that uh, Spiros's insufferable love of fussy coffee had rubbed off on Dollar Bill, who 
you know, seems like the type to get some bodega, co- like black coffee from the bodega because it's cheap, if not, you know, make some Folgers at home. But you also had a pop culture reference pulled from the Axe Wags uh, make a speech at someone they're trying to persuade school of, of yeah. scene. So this was, I guess, in line with the this just being so out of left field and just totally not in line with the conversation or anything that normal people would talk about. But, um, you know, when they were talking about how acts would, you know, deflect suspicion about, you know, surrounding all the the recent turmoil at Axe Capital, Wags uh, tells Taylor that Axe would parry all questions like Charles Van Doren. And Charles Van Doren was, you know, most famous for being on a on a game show I believe called 21 in the 50s where he was he had a long a long run where he made over you know what is like more than a million dollars in today's money because he was being fed the answers by the show but who would ever say that in normal conversation and assume that the person they were talking to knew what that was. The, oh, the quiz know. show scandals of the 1950s, a seminal moment in early TV history. Before we had HQ, <laughs> there was 21. But, I mean, I actually wrote my college thesis on 1950s TV because I am committed to always being on brand. And even <laughs> I had to do a quick Google to make sure I'd, I'd gotten my memory of that right. I have some favorite quotes of the week that don't necessarily fit in the pop culture category. But before we get to those, let's hear about one of our sponsors. How do you know when you're saving and investing for the life you want? Finances big and small can be confusing, as anyone who tries to understand the ins and outs of a billions plot knows. Understanding the market can be intimidating. Ditto. Fortunately, Betterment, the largest online financial advisor, is here to change that. Its mission is to help customers make the most of their money by taking complex investing strategies and using technology to make them more efficient. At Betterment, hidden costs are nowhere to be found. No matter who you are or how much money you invest, you get everything for one low and transparent management fee. And as a fiduciary, they make recommendations in clients' best interest. They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds, and they don't have their own investment products to sell. So unlike the traders at Axe Capital, you can always trust their motivations. Sign up today, and as of the Recapable's Billions listener, you can get up to one year managed free. Remember, investing involves risk. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash IceJuice. That's Betterment.com slash IceJuice. All right, so... For quotes of the week, I would like to start with something that's not necessarily a pop culture reference. It's more of a high culture reference, which is why we're folding it in here. But when Axe pays his visit to Todd Krakow, we're in some sort of fancy art storage room where no doubt millions upon millions of dollars of priceless art is, you know, festering in some rich guy's vault instead of being on display to the public. Guys, please donate your collections to museums. It's public good. But Todd Krakow obviously isn't very concerned with that. And he says, I love owning the Flemish school, but it's tough to hang in a Pomo townhouse. Which just, what a what a beautiful image. Clearly he didn't take a page out of uh, Eli Broad's book, I Live in Los Angeles, where we are able to go look at a priceless multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire's uh, art collection, maybe a billionaire. But he collected only the most contemporary of art 
but Todd Krakow has not been able to uh, unify his decorating sensibility with his artistic one. Yes. He also says, my wife says the Dutch masters don't go with the Desed couch, which I had to look up what Desed was. It is fancy furniture, and this all seems quite unnecessary. Oh, it's not a Ikea model? No, I guess not. But we had a we had a couple other quotes of the week. So, Chris, did you have any favorites? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, this is a this is a, quite a rich Spiros awkward week. Um when he walks into Wags and Axe's office before being fired, uh he, you know, the conversation's a little bit awkward and in a pause he puts on his best uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi accent and says, I sense a disturbance in the force. Which is even more painful than you would imagine it being. Uh, but he really uh, he really knows how to make the pop culture references hurt more than they usually do. And I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, it's also just the wrong strategy. We know, I mean, Axe obviously, I'm sure, enjoys Star Wars as he does most <laughs> things from the 70s and 80s, but he's not a geek culture guy. He's not someone that you're going to win over by, like, dropping some Star Wars knowledge. And by knowledge, I mean, like, literally the most famous line <laughs> from the entire movie. Um, but we also have in Spiro's quotes that are so painfully awkward, I think they cross over the other side into kind of fun when he and Dollar Bill are brainstorming. And Dollar Bill points out that if someone is sweating in an interview with the SEC, they're not crooked. They're just a loser. <laughs> But real crooks know how to lie with a straight face. And Spiro says, it's like you have a seventh sense for the dark side. Dollar Bill points out that the actual phrase is sixth sense. And Spiro's responds, I try to avoid cliche. Which, Incredible. as we just recounted, he does not do. <laughs> I sense a disturbance in the force is not exactly a novel deep cut. Um, there's also some, some fun Wags genitalia references. Oh, yes. So when they're talking about, before they start talking about uh, the Wilburys and all of that, they're talking about Axe and Wags and Taylor are talking about the Beatles and Axe asks Wags, you know, what they did immediately after they got back from their whirlwind North American tour in the 60s. And uh, he's talking about how they went back and then recorded an album every six months, you know, to capitalize on the, all the fame that they had at the moment. But Wags doesn't say that. He says, you know, after they got back, I assume they all went to their doctor and got a shot of penicillin in their dicks, which, you know, I guess you need to always have one Wags uh Wags penis reference in every episode, so I'm glad we got that one. And one from Taylor. We got we got a surrogate mm. one. I also am not sure that's how STD treatment has worked at yeah. any point. I don't think you like inject. I don't know. I'm uh, I'm not yeah. a doctor. I'm not speaking from a place of knowledge. That just seems like some faulty medical science. But Wags is always in spirit. I think our MVP of the week, even though this was <laughs> maybe not so much his episode. Not a very he Wags heavy episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he will get his time to shine sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, we should run through our MVPs of the week and our LVPs of the week. My vote for MVP is the same as it was last week. I know it was a controversial choice, but I think I have to go with Wendy again, which I think this is an episode that saw a lot of people 
not necessarily come out on top. I don't know if there's anyone who clearly, like, wins the episode. I just thought Wendy pulled off the most impressive power play. First of all, she is no longer facing the threat of prison time. She's clearly feeling the stress of it as she confesses to Axe, and Axe basically says, you need to learn to be proud of what you've done instead of ashamed (laughs) of it. Uh, So maybe she'll take that to heart. I hope not. But in the meantime, she does manage to... She doesn't, you know, necessarily get the the sexual reward she was looking forward to, (laughs) but she does get the uh, domination, shall we say, of... Another member of the Rhodes family. <laughs> yeah. She gets to give a big old fuck you to her father-in-law, Shomu's boss. She gets her, she convinces her husband to give up on what he once thought was his biggest ambition and convince him that he's not just being blackmailed to drop out of the governor's race by this judge that did him a huge favor, but he's also genuinely not, his heart isn't in it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was a, like, she continues to get stuff done despite not being in the best place personally, which I thought puts her at least above other people in the episode. Yeah, I think Wendy was definitely the clear winner this week. You know, obviously she was the only she was the only one who really managed to shift power more in her direction, even if she is kind of, you know, still s- squeezed in between some tough areas. But if I had to pick someone else, uh, I would go with Taylor because I was just very heartened by the way that they're starting to, you know, come into conflict with Axe's more, you know, questionable personal and financial dealings. You know, uh, obviously the scene at the end of the episode where Axe is supposed to go get dinner with his kids. This is after, you know, earlier in the episode where uh Gordy is talking to Wendy and gets yelled at by Lara for talking to her. And she and Lara and Bobby have a big fight while he's, you know, in the office. You know, obviously Axe's relationship with his kids is very tough right now. And he has them waiting at a restaurant and he cancels on that because he wants to make sure that he stays in the office later than Taylor does. And it's it was good to see. Taylor both, you know, obviously come in, come into, you know, conflict with Axe earlier in the episode, but also, you know, obviously they're in his head. And that was kind of cool to see because, you know, he's literally, you know, ruining his relationship with his children for the sake of a meaningless dick war. Uh, and so, you know, I, I got to give my award to Taylor. Yeah, they really put Axe on his heels, which after he's just one of federal court case is really impressive. But there's also a great quote of the week related to that exchange. Or we didn't, we didn't have time for it in quotes of the week, but I still think it's worth a shout out. You coming? Not quite yet. You know when I get on the treadmill of the gym, I got to stay on until the guy next to me gets off, go further, longer. It's just the way I'm wired. You go to a gym with other people in it? There was a time. Wags echoes what I think everyone in the audience is thinking and is like, you go to a gym with other people in it? Doesn't your enormous penthouse with two Jasper Johns paintings have like a mini Equinox franchise inside of it? And Axe point reminds him there was a time. He I'm, came from nothing, you know? <laughs> and then in the middle, there was like a pit stop at a crunch. He was in like the solid mid-tier of New York fitness clubs. That's how he maintains this physique. But 
Yeah, I thought it was a good episode for Taylor. I also think there's been some speculation as to what the end game of their relationship with Oscar Longstrat, played by Mike Birbiglia, is. Miles, our friend and colleague, floated that maybe Oscar was going to double-cross Taylor. But after this episode, I think his purpose might be giving them something outside of Axe Capital that they value and also maybe an outsider's opinion Wendy's entire purpose, you know, she can be counsel and provide advice, but she's employed by Axe Capital. Like, her interests are the firm's interests. Mm -hmm. So Wendy isn't necessarily reliably going to be like, hey, like, maybe you don't need to be there anymore. Maybe you're better than this. Maybe you're bigger than this. Maybe this firm is dragging you down. And I now think Taylor has someone in their life who can be like, yeah, like, I value you outside of your context in this firm, and I can be a semi-objective voice telling you maybe it's time to get out. That's my theory for what the end game is there. Yeah, before this episode, I was certainly on uh, on Miles' team with this. Miles, my office, maybe we talk a, a lot about how we were sort of suspicious of the Berbiglia character, but— Especially after they shut down the quant project in in this episode, it seems that, you know, it wouldn't really make sense then for uh, Oscar to steal Taylor's algorithm. It makes a lot more sense that he would be, you know, some way for them to start to compete with X outside of X capital. So I guess I guess that's nice. That's good. It means that their relationship is okay and not a disaster like everything else on the show. Yeah, I want to believe. This is probably wishful thinking on my part, but that's my my fan theory for what Mike Birbiglia is doing on this Showtime drama. But, okay, well, we've talked about who we thought won the week. We should probably talk about who we thought lost. Guess who's back, guys? It's Lara, perennial LVP, who is really turning into the bitter ex-wife we she thought she was above being. Which Axe really slips in the knife by saying that he, he'd planned for this eventuality and basically already drawn up paperwork to that effect. But Lara basically storms in and is really mad that Axe is charging her like market or retail price for his financial services now that he's managing her money and demands a discount. And he eventually, he eventually gives it to her, but in exchange for a seven-year lockup on both the money and their children, and his children, yeah. which is just treating his kids the same way that he does a financial asset. Real great sign of Axe's fatherhood. But Lara also does not come off looking great in this episode. Would you? Would you agree? Yeah. So I mean, she ends up instead of getting two and twenty, getting one and ten. And you know, Axe had had that ready from the beginning. So she, you know, she. Uh, knows that she's been bested and then she has a very, you know, childlike throwing the pen on the ground after she after she signs the terms. Uh, I don't really know where they're going with her. Are we going to have to keep doing this? I don't know. But, yeah, she had a tough week. I think they're getting closer to being able to justify writing her off. She's already a very liminal presence on the show. Also... She sees Gordy talking to Wendy. I actually do agree that it's it's a little bit of an overstep of boundaries to instantly slip into therapist mode with your boss's slash business partner's child, regardless of your, you know, your the status of your relationship with his ex-wife. But she overhears Gordy talking to Wendy and understandably blows a gasket, but in a way that, again, really gives her the 
opposite of the upper hand in her negotiations. And Axe says, I've figured out how to move on. I've focused on other things. I'm figuring out what my life looks like now. You should do the same thing. So maybe that's foreshadowing that she's about to come up, like, I don't know, maybe lean into that Ivy business idea and decide to do something else. (laughs) The the listener can't see this, but Chris (laughs) just made a face when I mentioned Lara's business prospects. I think that's done, but I do think maybe that was a, okay, like we need an acknowledgement maybe on the show's part that we need to give her something to do. But speaking Mm -hmm. of someone who needs something to do with his life now... My LVP, I will admit up front, I don't think he's going to be the LVP for long. But Connerty, after taking the big fat L of losing the biggest case of his career last week, takes the even bigger L of immediately being fired from the job he was just reassigned to. Baddest man in the whole damn town. Just wait a second. You breached my threshold and threatened me. Threatened my wife, the mother of my children. How could you think there's a universe where you would survive that? Oh, Brian, you are many things. A man, a boy, a lawyer, a fighter, a student of the dark side of humanity, and a lover of jurisprudence. But there's one thing you're certainly not. An assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Drop your credentials at the guard's desk and get the fuck out of here! He kind of takes the news with this, like, knowing smirk. I think maybe it was just showing how deeply he'd gotten under Chuck's skin. Maybe it was the resolution of, okay, well, now I'm going to take you down now. But for the week, like, I think showing up to an office being you know, getting flexed on by being ignored for a day and then fired in front of all of your colleagues who you like and respect. Just a tough look. I think he's going to come back from it soon enough in a way that is not good for Chuck, but I think Connerty has to be my LVP on paper of the week. Yeah, I'm certainly hoping for, you know, come up from him. I guess I'm a bit of a sucker. I know that this is, I guess, a Team Axe podcast and you're a Team Chuck person. I like to think of myself as, you know, the lone resident of uh, Connerty Island. But, you know, <laughs> I think he'll I think he'll enjoy some of his time at uh, the table tennis club, you know, getting some reps and then come back strong, hopefully. Oh, right. The table tennis club. I don't know. He's a flight attendant girlfriend. Maybe he can cash in some frequent flyer miles, take a vacation, get a free first class upgrade, hitchhike on a private jet. You know, know. it's all Uh, good. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, my my least valuable for the week, I guess I'd got to go with Foley and Chuck Sr., who just got dunked on by everybody in this episode. It After, you know, I mean, I guess Chuck Sr. has struggled a little bit, but, you know, Foley has kind of been, you know, calm and cool, the power player, you know, the guy who really, you know, is the, you know, the grandmaster of everything here. And he just gets absolutely wrecked by both Chuck and Wendy here and, you know, losing his guy for governor, getting, you know, Chuck endorsing you know his former guy you know he's it's very clear that he's not pulling the strings and if he's not pulling the strings then really what is his purpose in any of this you know i guess he very much fancies himself as the guy who controls power and it's very clear that he doesn't control power anymore or at least right now uh so i gotta say that he and chuck senior had probably the worst week They really did, although it was very satisfying to see them get dunked on. I also thought they were the recipient of 
I'm sorry, guys. I love the writing on the show, but my least favorite line of dialogue of the episode, which is when they are in the dungeon, they think they have sprung this big power play that is soon going to be reversed on them. But Chuck is yelling at them about why they have done this in this really embarrassing way as opposed to approaching him in private at a later date. And he shouts, because it's your kink, which is just, <laughs> I think I like melted into my chair. The, le- the less I have to hear Paul Giamatti say the word kink out loud, ditto oh, dominatrix, man. ditto Mrs. Martinez, ditto really anything related to BDSM, the better off my spirit is. But yeah, that was part of that plot line, so I think it's part of why they are the LVPs. But looking ahead, I think we've already talked about what our most anticipated development is, but do you want to just say it? What are they going to pull it out? Where's John Malkovich? What's he doing? Is does he own the Nets? Like, it, it, yeah, what? I don't understand what they're waiting for. I guess this is going to be something that's going to stretch into next season, if not, you know, his appearance and actually, you know, whatever plot line he's developing. But like, I thought we'd have seen him by now. You know, it's we know it's a multi-episode arc, but part of me just really wants them to tease this for the whole season and then have just the last frame be like a door dramatically opens and it's John Malkovich. Looking and in just Oreo, been, yeah. You know, because obviously the Billions audience is just dying and in suspense and doesn't care about anything else that happens on this show. <laughs> <laughs> They're just really stringing us along for that John Malkovich payoff. But I thought this was a really satisfying episode as a whole, and this was really the only thing that we were left hanging about. So on that happy note, we will talk again about this next week. I'm so excited to find out where our trio and Taylor and Oscar Longstrat and the Martinez's and everything else is going from here. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. See you guys next week. <laughs>